0: Good morning and happy Easter from me. If I haven't met you before, my name's Philip. I'm uh, one of the pastors here. It's great to see you. I hope you're having a great morning so far. We're going to continue with our series, a two-part series uh, called The Journey. So there have been, he says, longing for his history teaching days, there have been many moments in history that have changed our perception significantly. Many fundamental key moments in history that have changed our perception of history. Uh, one of which was this. In the early 1600s, a guy called Galileo, who you would have heard of, uh, he made some interesting claims. Galileo was condemned by the Catholic Church for heresy, and his alleged heresy was that he claimed, he dared to say, that the earth revolved around the sun, which got him into an awful lot of trouble, because at that time the church, and I guess most of contemporary science really, held to the opposite view. They felt that since mankind is the pinnacle of all creation, then of course the sun would revolve around the earth. But Galileo claimed, in fact, the earth revolved around the sun. And of course, over the next 300 years or so, people started to realize Galileo was right, that indeed the earth did revolve around the sun. And as such, people's worldview, understanding of things just transformed dramatically through that discovery. We realized why we have seasons, why it's hot in summer and cold in winter, why the tides change as they do, why we have uh, times of the day and so on. Our understanding would never be the same again thanks to that one discovery. And there have been many moments like that through history. For hundreds of years, if you contracted rabies, that was akin to basically a death sentence until Louis Pasteur in 1885 discovered a vaccine which ended all of that. If you lived behind the Berlin Wall post-war, you could not go anywhere more than about 500 square miles because of your captivity behind the Berlin Wall. The Berlin Wall came down and suddenly the world was available to you. For hundreds of years, nobody could ever run a mile less than four minutes. It was thought to be impossible, unthinkable. And in 1954, Roger Bannister did just that. He ran under four minutes. And since then, people have been running lots of sub-four-minute miles. Galileo's discovery, Pasteur's vaccine, the fall of the Berlin Wall, Roger Bannister's sub-four-minute mile, all moments in history that have transformed our understanding of what's possible. All moments that have completely reversed our uh, perception of what could be possible. And that really, in some ways, is the, is the nature of the Christian gospel. The Christian gospel has got the biggest claim to a historical transforming moment, as we were hearing through our worship this morning. The claim of the Christian gospel is that it has transformed history utterly through one moment, the resurrection of Christ. The claim is that death is no longer the end. Even what Galileo claimed to be and what Pasteur claimed to achieve were nothing in comparison to what Christianity is claiming to have, as it were, achieved through Christ. That death is somehow beatable, that it's not the end. And that's where we land this morning. We're in Luke 24. We began in Luke last Sunday, and we've gone through Luke through the week. And we're about to meet this claim for ourselves at the end of Luke chapter 24. And verse 13 is where we're going to be. And to help you understand the context in which you're about to arrive, we're going to meet two uh, previously unknown disciples. One's called Cleopas. The other one, we don't know his or her name. Though some people have suggested it might have been Cleopas' wife. And these two disciples are reeling. It's Easter Sunday. They are reeling because of what they saw on Friday, the murder of Jesus himself. And they're also reeling because they just heard that the body is no longer in the tomb. They're not. In any way, assuming resurrection, they're probably assuming the body's been stolen or something. So these two people are reeling in every sense as they walk along to a place called Emmaus from Jerusalem. And that's where we pick up the story in verse 13. That very day, two of them were going to a village named Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. And they were talking with each other about all these things that had happened. While they were talking and discussing together, Jesus himself drew near and went with them. and they said to him, concerning Jesus of Nazareth, a man who was a prophet, mighty in deed and word before God and all the people, and, and how our chief priests and rulers delivered him up to be condemned to death and crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. Yes, and besides all this, it's now the third day, Sunday, since these things happened. And moreover, some women of our company amazed us because they were at the tomb early this morning, and when they didn't find his body, they came back saying that they had even seen a vision of angels who said he was alive. Some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it, just as the women had said. But him, Jesus, they did not see. And he, Jesus, said to them, Oh, foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Wasn't it necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses And all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. And the story continues. The two disciples go on talking with Jesus. They invite him for a meal. And it's in that moment during the breaking of bread and the meal that they suddenly, as it were, have their eyes opened and realize they are beholding the risen Lord Jesus. And it's a transformative moment for them, an utterly transformative moment for them. They go from sadness to joy. They go from despair to hope. They go from thinking the mission of Jesus was quite small and has failed to realising the mission of Jesus is enormous and is victorious. So the claim this morning, if you haven't already got it, is that Jesus' resurrection changes everything. Jesus' resurrection changes everything. We see that in three ways. Number one, through the Bible. It's all about Jesus. In history, it's all in relation to Jesus. And in our futures, they're shaped by Jesus, through the Bible, in history, and in our futures. Number one, the whole Bible is about Jesus, which might seem an obvious statement to make, but look at what Luke points out at the end of the passage in verse 27. And beginning with, the, with Moses and all the prophets, i.e. the whole Old Testament, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. Jesus taught them, the whole Bible, as much as you know it, is all pointing towards me. They had like the ultimate Bible study, I guess, with Jesus himself. As he explained to them, all that you know about in the Old Testament, all of it relates to me, all of it points to me, all of it anticipates me. So recently, I found myself in an interesting position of watching a bit of opera on, uh, online, which those of you know me probably is a surprising uh, option for me to consider. I don't know why I found myself watching it, but I did, I'm watching some opera, and actually I've always been a little bit kind of intrigued by opera, in the sense that um, it seems so full of kind of drama or, or melodrama and, and kind of anticipation, and it's a, a sort of huge, it kind of oozes with tension and so on. It's always intrigued me, at least to an extent, although not enough to actually go and, go and watch one. Um, but I was realizing as I was watching it, and was kind of intrigued and understanding to an extent. I could, I could see that the singing was of high quality and the, the set was very impressive and I could tell the person singing was clearly exercised about something. But as, about as much as I could tell, I realized I didn't really know what was going on. I didn't really have a clue what was happening. And I would imagine if I went to an opera with somebody, I'd be probably one of those really annoying companions because I'd be going, Who, who's that? What, what, what did she say? What's happened next? And if you've ever had that experience of watching a film or a box set with somebody and they don't quite know what's going on, what happens next? Just shut up, this is the name. And we can have that experience a little bit with the Old Testament in particular. We can miss what it's all about. We can miss the central theme of the Bible, that it really is pointing always and through every different angle and type, it's pointing to Jesus. So if you go back to the story of the Bible, because it is one big story, go back right to the beginning of the story of the Bible in Genesis 3, and you see this conflict emerging between sin on the one hand and between humanity on the other hand. And God makes this incredible promise that one day, a human descendant of Adam and Eve would be the one that would crush sin. That's the promise that God makes, that would bruise and crush sin. And for the rest of the story of the Bible, you see loads and loads of events and people and systems, and all of them are pointing in different ways towards Jesus. They're all pointing towards what he would do, his life, his death, his resurrection. Every event, every system, every person almost in some way does that. And so we saw that, didn't we, in our last teaching series on the life of Joseph, which ended a couple of weeks ago. We saw that in different ways with Joseph. He pointed towards the nature of Christ. A man who was falsely accused and suffered, but who led his people and many other people to victory and to freedom and to safety. He points us to what Jesus is like. We see it in Moses. One who is able to stand between the people and God and bring about a new system and a new future and the means of knowing God. Points towards Jesus. We see it in the system of the high priests all through the Old Testament. You offer sacrifices over and over and over again, offering sacrifices on behalf of the people for the forgiveness of sins and to bring them into right relationship with God. That system is pointing towards what Jesus would accomplish. You see in the countless prophecies about Jesus, loads of prophecies throughout the Old Testament, all pointing towards Jesus, predicting things like where he'd be born, from what line he would come, how he would die, how he'd be buried. Even little things like the soldiers that would would gamble for his clothing. Things were predicted hundreds of years before. And predictions that death would not be able to hold him. The whole Bible is about Jesus. When you get that, when that's the lens through which you read the Bible, it begins to make sense. And for Cleopas and his companion, whether it was his wife or not, I don't know. But some commentators suggest it was. It changes everything. It transforms everything for them. Now, I'm paraphrasing, but what they kind of said in the passage was, we thought Jesus was going to come and kick out the Romans and rescue Israel. And as the passage goes on, they realize that actually, no, no, no. Jesus was always the means by which God would not only save Israel, but why, by which he would bless all peoples across the earth. Everything changes for them. For them, they, they thought death was the end. They were not thinking, body gone equals resurrection. They were thinking, body gone equals someone stolen But because they meet the risen Lord Jesus, everything changes. They realise, no, the power of death is broken. Death is not the end. It couldn't hold him. And when I'm united through faith to him, it can't and it won't hold me either. The resurrection of Jesus changes everything. And when you understand the Bible is pointing all towards it, we can be changed as well. So number two, all history also is in relation to Jesus. That's a big claim. I think anybody who's more sceptical about the claims of the Christian faith could say, yeah, fine, I get that your Bible points towards Jesus, but all history is in relation to Jesus. There's a piece of artwork that's going to appear on the screen just here from Southwark Tube Station. For you commuters, I don't know whether you ever go via Southwark Tube Station. I'm not sure if it's still there, but it certainly was last year. If history could be folded, where would you put the crease? What a great question to see on your way to work, if you're just kind of waking up for a bit of philosophical contemplation first thing in the morning over your coffee. I guess what the artist is saying is, if there is a most significant moment in history, who is at the center of it? Is that what the artist is basically saying? Who has most left their mark on history? Now, this is church, so surprise, surprise. I'm going to claim that Jesus is the one who has left the biggest mark on history. Whatever you think about his claims to divinity, to be God, or by his claims to risen from death to life, I would suggest he's had the most remarkable, the biggest effect on history of anybody at all. So today is the 27th of March, 2016, yeah? 2016 years on from what? From the birth of Christ. But we didn't always used to measure our, our dates, our calendar from anything to do with Jesus. In fact, Luke himself, the author of the book we've been looking at, he tells us that. In chapter three, Luke says, in the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, Pontius Pilate became governor. 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar. Now we know, To that date was A.D. 29. But at that time, Luke measures time because the world measured time by the most influential people on the earth, the Caesars. Therefore, it was in the 15th year of the reign that the calendar is dated. But 500 years later, you get a guy whose name I can rarely pronounce, Dionysius Exegus, who said, we need to change everything. Jesus was so significant, he says, and people agree with him, so significant, we need to change history so that we talk about the things that happened before him and the things that happened after him. That's a pretty radical effect on history. All history is in relation to Jesus. The resurrection of Jesus transforms everything. Why do we start our calendar on the 1st of January even? Where do we we get that method from? So under Israeli or Jewish custom... When a child is born, after eight days, they're taken to the temple to be named. And so because at some point it was decided that we would celebrate Jesus' birth on the 25th of December, that probably wasn't when he was born, but it was decided we would celebrate his birth then. If you count forward eight days from then, 25, 26, 27, 28, 29, 30, 31, first, that's why the year starts, eight days after the birth of Christ. His effect on our history, on our calendar, is extraordinary. We can't even look at our calendar without acknowledging the transformative effect of the resurrection of Christ. His birthday is the most celebrated birthday on the planet. I don't know who's number two, but I know who's number one. His birthday. The instrument on which he died has adorned more uh, jewellery and been put on more gravestones and been the focal pieces of more pieces of art than anybody or anything else A guy called John Ortberg, who wrote a book called Who Is This Man? I think he sums up Jesus' transformative effect on history beautifully. He says this, imagine a world with no Jesus. Imagine a world with no Notre Dame, no Westminster Abbey, no Peter, no Paul, no Aquinas, no Augustine, no Francis of Assisi, no Orega, no Martin Luther, no Martin Luther King, no Mother Teresa, no Joan of Arc, no Dietrich Bonhoeffer. No John Wesley, John Newton, John Bunyan, John Calvin, John Milton, John the Baptist. No Mozart, no Mendelssohn, no Hallelujah Chorus, no God Save the Queen. No Beethoven, no Bach who signed all his pieces to the glory of God. There'd be no William Wilberforce, no Elizabeth Fry, no Louis Pasteur, no Leibniz, no Faraday no Leonardo da Vinci, no Raphael, no Tintoretto. All these people went on to do the amazing things they did because they were inspired by this guy called Jesus. He has transformed history. And remember, this is a guy who never wrote a book, never led an army, wasn't a military general of any sort, never held any governmental office, never went to school, worked as a carpenter, never travelled more than 200 miles away from the place that he was born died at just 33 and his followers were known as unschooled, ordinary men. How on earth did he transform history? Why? Because two people like Cleopas and his companion and 120 others and then a few centuries later, millions of others became convinced that Jesus really had come back to life again, thereby proving all that he had taught and claimed to be true that's why history has been transformed so the bible is all about jesus and his death and resurrection number one history has been transformed by jesus's death and resurrection And number three what about us what about our futures what about our day today what about our week this week or year this year how does the resurrection of christ transform everything for you and i sitting here this morning because let's be honest, if the resurrection didn't happen, and I didn't prime Pete to read the passage that he read just earlier on, if the resurrection didn't happen, our lives sitting here is a complete waste of time. Let's be really blunt about that. If the resurrection didn't happen, this is a waste of time. It would be nothing more than a nice way of getting together socially, which I'm not saying will be a waste of time, but you get my points. The resurrection is absolutely fundamental. Pete read from 1 Corinthians 15 before this morning which I didn't ask him to do, but I'm very glad that he did. And I'll summarise it on the board here. Paul says very bluntly, Paul didn't mess around here. He writes a letter to one of the first churches in Corinth, first century AD. He says to them, if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain, and your faith is in vain. Verse 17, and if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile, and you are still in your sins. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. not messing around, Paul, is he? He's saying everything hinges upon the resurrection. Everything hinges upon Easter Sunday, today. If it didn't happen, let's go home. Let's live life, make merry, and live for today only. It really is that important. Paul's basically saying there's no reason to worship there's no reason to serve. There's no reason to give. There's no reason to, to take difficult decisions and honor God through your lifestyle and through your decisions. All of that would be pointless were it not for the resurrection. It really is that important. So I guess it's worth asking, how do we know he really has risen from death to life? Like, you might be here this morning thinking, I, I get what you're saying. I get all this is what Christians believe. I get this is what you want to sing about and your Bible's about. And, and yeah, I get that Jesus has maybe affected history an awful lot. But are you really claiming that somebody came back to life again? That does not happen. It's a good question to ask. It's what a lot of our society are asking. Because for many people today, it just, obviously it just couldn't happen. It's just an impossibility. It can't happen because it's an exception to the natural law. And we work, don't we, to natural laws. So the resurrection would be an exception to natural law and therefore it can't happen. That's the, I guess, general worldview in our modern Western society. Now I'm not about to say, and I have the magic proof that will convince you. But I would say if you are a Christian, you should rest assured that there is significant, historical, intellectually credible reasons to believe in a physical resurrection. And if you're here as our guest exploring and asking some of these brilliant questions on Easter Sunday, I would suggest I could give you just four things now that would at least move you from perhaps thinking this could not happen to thinking it could be an intellectually credible decision to make. That's all I want to achieve in these next few minutes. Four things. Four things that I think help us to evidence the resurrection. Number one might be a funny place to start. Creation. Creation. I've mentioned opera and now I'm mentioning science, which for me is two unusual things. It strikes me that we believe, when it comes to the exception to the natural law, it strikes me that we believe in it when it comes to how the universe was created. Most modern science is happy to believe that the exception to the natural law must have happened for creation to come about. So by that I mean, for all of the conditions and variables needed to all be at exactly the right moment for life to have happened, the odds were very, very long indeed for all the variables and conditions to be exactly right at exactly the right moment for life to have instigated. Professor Stephen Hawking says that the odds for all the proteins necessary for life coming together are one in ten to the power of 40,000. So that's one chance in ten with 40,000 noughts. That's the chances of all those things coming together at exactly the right moment for life to be instigated. Two more very eminent scientists, physicists and astronomers, Sir Fred Hoyle and Professor Vikramasinghe, they wrote a book together and they agreed with these enormously long chances. These are staunch atheists. And they said they agree with the odds that Hawking had put forward and they said, therefore, the chances of, that cre- of creation happening by chance, in their words, are an outrageously small probability. And yet their conclusion is, it did happen by chance. There was not a designer god, there was no force behind it. It was a chance thing, perhaps spores from outer, outer space were somehow brought to earth, so on and so forth. I'm just pointing out that most of modern society is happy to accept when it comes to creation, the universe starting, the exception happened. When it comes to the resurrection, most of society would say the exceptions natural law couldn't have happened. Second point, the body. Where did the body of Jesus go? A lot of people with both a hugely vested interest and the power to reveal the body didn't. So the Roman authorities and the Jewish authorities, if they'd have revealed Jesus' body, the whole thing would have just died like that. Christianity would have finished and never would have been heard of again. Had they done what the Romans often used to do and got a a, a murdered traitor or rebel and trailed his body through the streets, the whole thing would have finished. Why did nobody bring the body and Bring Christianity to its knees there and then. Well, number three, maybe the disciples stole the body. Maybe they overpowered the Roman guards, rolled away the tomb, stole the body, and then, such was their grief or embarrassment or shame at giving their lives what they're given to, they then propagated a myth, a conspiracy theory, that Jesus had risen again. Well, it strikes me that when people lie, they usually do it to get themselves out of trouble or to benefit themselves. Is that fair? Most reasons for lying is to get you out of trouble or to benefit yourself. That's why people lie. This lie, if it was a lie, did not benefit them in any way. And it did not get them out of trouble. Quite the opposite. So after Judas died, a twelfth apostle was appointed. Of those twelve disciples, eleven of them went to their death. Awful deaths for being convinced that Jesus really did rise again and was God. Eleven of the twelve, over the span of about forty years, went to their death convinced Holding out, saying, no, 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 he did rise again. I won't recant. I won't say Caesar is God. Jesus is God. I know it because I met him as a resurrected person. Thomas, speared to death in India for that conviction. Peter, crucified, probably upside down, somewhere in the Middle East. Every single one holding to this claim that Jesus did rise again. All 11. Why didn't one crack if it was a conspiracy theory? And speaking of conspiracy theories, last point. I recently came across uh, a speaker on, the, on Radio 4's Thought for the Day programme. And the speaker highlighted some research that had been done into conspiracy theories. I don't know whether any, any of you enjoy your conspiracy theories and what if and what might have happened and so on. And this uh, Oxford physicist called Dr David Grimes had done some research into how conspiracy theories are maintained. And he concluded what I don't imagine would have taken much thought to conclude, that for a conspiracy theory to continue for the lie to be maintained, you need as fewer collaborators as possible. Which I guess makes sense, because you need as few people as possible for the lie to be maintained. But he then did some very extensive research and came up with some statistics as to how a conspiracy theory could be maintained. He said, for a plot to last five years, something that's been made up, the maximum number colluding would be around 2,500 people. Any more, the plot will blow up. He said, for 10 years, fewer than 1,000 people a century-long deception would collapse with any more than 125 collaborators. For a conspiracy to last 20 centuries, it clearly would need very, very, very few people. So the point, therefore, is, given that we know 500 eyewitnesses were cited as having seen the resurrected Jesus, how did this conspiracy theory remain intact for 20 centuries, when, according to his research, it should have collapsed within months, if not a few years. And it's lasted two millennia. You might have heard of the famous Watergate scandal in America, which is probably one of the prime American political scandals when President Nixon's uh, administration was implicated in, well, was found guilty of a huge cover up in the early 70s. And an American Christian, who's also a historian, said this I know the resurrection is a fact, and Watergate proved it to me. How? Because 12 men testified they had seen Jesus raised from the dead and then they proclaimed that truth for 40 years, never once denying it and going to their death for it. Almost all of them were beaten, tortured, stoned, put in prison and 11 out of 12 died. They would not have endured that if it weren't true. Watergate embroiled another 12 men, 12 of the most powerful men in the world and they couldn't keep their lie for three weeks. You're telling me 12 apostles could keep alive life of 40 years? Impossible. So if Jesus really has been raised, and that's the claim we're making this morning, if the resurrection is true, how does it transform our futures? How does it transform us? And I'll close with these three things. How does it transform us? Number one, through power. The claim of the Bible after the church begins and people become followers of the resurrected Jesus is that the same power that raised Jesus from the dead can dwell inside a Christian. Jesus sent his spirit to be in us and the Bible says the same power that raised Christ from the dead dwells within me. I don't even know what that means. (laughs) The same power that brought Jesus from death to life is available to a follower of Christ. There is power available to you today. Resurrection power available to take tough decisions. Resurrection power to pray for people to be healed. Resurrection power for boldness to be able to proclaim Jesus. Resurrection power to be able to go through difficult times and still experience joy. There's resurrection power available to us. I don't fully know what that means, but I want to know what it means. I want to know what it means to walk with the same power that raised Jesus from the dead, dwelling within me and empowering me to do what he's called me to do. Number two, our, f- our future should be transformed by humility or should characterize humility. In blunt terms, the Bible and the transformative effect of history and Jesus' resurrection tells us that it re- it, this whole thing really is not about us. It's not about me. It's not about you. It's about him. Don't go to the Bible necessarily to focus on what you get from it. The Bible is about Jesus, and of course we receive from it. But the Bible is about Jesus. Don't be like, as it were, the Catholic Church back in 1600, that thought that the sun revolved around the earth. The earth revolves around the sun. S S S O N, you could say. So how are we doing walking in power? How are we doing walking in Humility. And that for me is such a challenge because if I'm honest, so much of my daily life is about me. It's about what I want, about what I want to achieve, about how I'm doing. It's not about Jesus and his fame and his glory and his proclamation of his gospel. Number three perspective. Perspective. For a follower of Jesus, we have a different perspective when we embrace the resurrected Christ as truth. 2 Corinthians 4.14, Paul writing to the same church in Corinth, different letter, says basically death is not the end. He says, we know that he who raised the Lord Jesus will raise us also with Jesus and bring us with you into his presence. Death is not the end for a follower of Jesus. We get a different perspective altogether. The teaching series we're going to do at the end of May through the summer will be in the book of 1 Peter and it will be called, the series will be called Perspective. Because Peter is writing to people saying, I want you to engage with the here and the now with passion and radical obedience, but you do so always looking to what's ahead, always looking to what's to come. You do so with a promise, a perspective of what you're really about. It's a really helpful, encouraging, equipping letter for us to look at. Do you live with perspective? Do you live with power? Do you live with humility? Do you live with perspective? The nature of baptism tells us that we're being identified with all that Jesus achieved. So not only do we get our sin, get buried with him, we get raised to newness of life. Newness of life now, abundant life, and newness of life forever. That's the promise of the resurrection, that Jesus has broken death, that it's not the end. That one day, my body, which seems to be falling apart at the moment, I'm going to get a brand new one and live forever because Jesus has broken death. The new creation is going to be so much better. It's going to last so much longer. And no matter the worst things that you go through or are going through, the Bible says they will feel like momentary and light afflictions compared to what it is to live forever with a brand new body in the company of the resurrected Jesus. You can only believe that if you have the same perspective as Paul is encouraging us to have. A perspective that says death is not the end. I'm living for something eternal. I'm living for a brand new thing. So are you living with power, humility, and perspective? If anyone lived with power, humility, and perspective, it was Jesus himself. I hope you've appreciated if you have been going through this la- this week, the Easter week. And doesn't Jesus demonstrate what it is to live with power, humility, and perspective? The humility that he shows in going to the most despicable humiliating death the humility that he shows in receiving the the abuse and the mocking and the spitting all because he did it all because of the joy set before him at the end and the perspective that sustained him that's hit me this week I think the perspective that Jesus had all the way through the Easter week that sustained him every day when he was clearing the temple on the Tuesday when he was being betrayed by Judas on the Wednesday and Thursday when he was praying in the garden of Gethsemane on a Thursday night, please God, anything else but this. When he was being spat at and mocked and falsely accused in the trials, when he was being scourged to an inch of his life, when he was hung on a cross, the perspective that he had was, I'm doing this for a greater reason. I'm doing this to bring many, many sons and daughters to glory. I'm doing this for the joy set before me. Some of us watched The Passion of the Christ in this very room last night. And there's a scene as Jesus is carrying his uh, cross through the city of Jerusalem. And because he's been beaten so horrendously and because the cross is so heavy, he stumbles over and over again, this awful thing clatters him on the head and the crown of thorns digs into his skull. It's just agonizing to watch. And Mel Gibson, who's the director of the movie, takes a bit of poetic license. Because when Jesus is on the, on the floor with the cross over his shoulder, uh, Jesus' mother Mary comes running to him. It's just a moment of maternal compassion that he can hardly describe. She doesn't know what to say. And Jesus, in the midst of his agony in the, in the scene, says, Mother, I'm making all things new. The perspective that he had in the midst of all of that, he knew what he was accomplishing. He knew that he was going to bring in something utterly transformative. Newness of life for all who would believe. An eternal life for all who would believe. Resurrection life. The perspective that he had that enabled him to go through what he went through was amazing. So how is our future transformed by the resurrection? It's transformed with power. It's transformed with humility and it's transformed with perspective. Finally, in fact, I can ask the band to come and join me. One of the things that Jesus does at the end of the scene that I started off with, with Cleopas and his companion, I told you that he goes back to their house, he talks with them, they, they, they realize who he is, and the moment they realize who he is is the moment that he breaks bread with them. I don't know whether he actually shared the Bread and wine, as we're about to do, but the phrase says that he broke bread. And so we're going to do that today. There's no more fitting day, I don't think, than Easter Sunday to share communion together. It's a great meal for those that have committed to following Christ, to share, to remind ourselves of what he accomplished on the Friday, his bread being broke, his body being broken, and his blood being shed, but also to remind us of what he accomplished on the Sunday when he walked out of the tomb. I love how the passion of the Christ, which takes you through two hours of just agonizing viewing. It finished with this wonderful moment of just a a glimpse of Jesus walking out of the tomb in a totally resurrected body. It's a wonderful moment. We're going to share communion together. If you wouldn't say that you're yet a follower of Jesus, we're so glad that you're here. But please feel under no, there's no reason for you to uh, be sharing communion. Just feel very free to be where you are, to enjoy singing, to reflect on what you've heard and reflect on why we're doing this. Reflect on why these people are going to take this meal and why these people are convinced that the resurrection really did happen that Jesus' body and blood weren't just broken and shed, but he was restored to fullness of life, and we can have fullness of life as well. So the communion guys, I'm sure, will be with us later on. I finished a bit early, so I might have thrown them, um, but at some point, that communion will be with us. So let's stand, we'll begin worshipping, and then Becca will help us to respond through prayer and through communion and so on and so forth. Lord Jesus, we uh, come before you this morning in, in worship and in praise. We are so grateful for all that you accomplished. We recognize that the whole of Scripture was always about you, Jesus. It was always pointing towards what you would accomplish and achieve on that Easter week. History has been transformed by you. A church that should never have started exploded into life and millions have become part of it. And so we worship you, Jesus, this morning. Please transform our lives more Please shape us more and more into your likeness, men and women full of power, full of humility, and full of an eternal perspective that knows that death is not the end. It didn't hold you and it won't hold us. We worship you this morning, Jesus. Amen.